Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to speak today on freedom from shame. You're in a shame-free zone. Amen. Because of what Jesus did, he removes our shame. He does not do what the world does. The world does one of three things. They either heap shame on people. You ever watch Jerry Springer and when the DNA test comes back on the baby, the guy who's been denying it's his baby, finds out he is a dad and the crowd just heaps shame on him for being a deadbeat dad. If the test comes back negative that he's not the dad, then the crowd heaps his shame up on the mama for being a hoe. You ever watch those shows? It's on every day on your TV. The world just piles shame on people. And then there's the blame crowd looking for somebody to blame for their problems. And some things that have been tried in court have been crazy. Remember the bank robber who blamed his habit of robbing on Twinkies? Greg Harold told me yesterday that Rick Warren spells blame as B, lame. Just surrender all responsibility and all control in your life and just be lame and blame everybody for your problems. If you're that kind of person, if you're the king of excuses, welcome to your future because you're always going to be a victim. And then there's the crowd in the world that attempts to legitimize things that are shameful by saying it's no longer shameful. And so I think there's a talk show on the radio called The Shame-Free Zone where a gal helps people to embrace their taboos as normal. And that's kind of what this business is of Billy and Bobby wanting to get married and become the Billy Bob family. They're seeking to declare something that is shameful is not shameful by saying, well, look, we're married. We're monogamous. Well, the Scriptures do not declare shameful things as not being shameful but it declares us as being free of shame through what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. So today we're going to look at the root of shame, where it goes back to, and then the beginning of its remedy. And look at Genesis chapter 1, the first verse. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Everybody say the beginning. And then verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. According to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. All right, go to chapter 2. Chapter 1 declares what he did through the power of his word. Chapter 2 explains how he did it. Verse 7 of Genesis 2. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. Verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it, which literally in the Hebrew language means to guard and protect it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, 
But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Verse 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, he begins to prophesy, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Woman, man with a womb. In the Hebrew language, the word for man is ish. And the word for woman is isha. So when ish saw the feminine ish, ish said, isha. Therefore, verse 24, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they both were naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Tell your neighbor they were not ashamed. They were naked and not ashamed. Verse 1 of the next chapter, the very next verse says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of the tree of the garden? You know, did God really say not to eat of that tree? Remember, God said you can eat of all the trees, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat of it. For the day you eat of it, you will die. All right. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now let me say this about theology. Theology has a lot of good ideas in it, but when you begin to add to the word with your theology... It's not good. Example. Theology, according to the word, says we must honor God. There are churches that say to honor God, you must wear a necktie. That's adding to the word, right? That's a good idea to wear a necktie if you're going to a church full of bankers. But man, we're in Granbury. For six and a half years, we worshipped in an A-frame type auditorium, meaning no insulation, called the Country Love Theater that was cooled during the summer with four window units. And one of them was in the back where you couldn't even see it in another room. And another one, another one was in the front of the building behind a curtain in the snack bar. So basically, we were cooled with these two window units. You know, we didn't own the building, but we talked the owner into letting us put rotating fans and screwing them to several of the beams. It was the hottest church in town. We were hot for it. Those neckties got burned right off of us. We weren't really popular with us anyway. But six and a half years in a place like that, you know, we just aren't a tie-wearing church. But the point I'm making is in your theology, in your application of the word, keep in mind what is your application and what the word really says. The word was, don't eat of the tree. The application was, don't touch it. Well, I mean, if they're going to make rules to add to the word, they should have said, and neither shall you look at it. But the Lord just said, don't eat it. So because she believed, no doubt Adam may be added to the word. I don't know. Verse 4, 
The serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So the temptation came in the form of her believing that maybe God was holding out on her. Maybe God didn't tell the whole truth. Maybe God was trying to keep them down. Maybe what the Bible calls sin really isn't sin. It's happening today. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took its fruit. So she's holding it, believing she's not supposed to hold it, and she's not dead. Well, she still wasn't violating the word yet. Then she ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then here's the result. The eyes of both of them were opened. They knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Let's all say shame. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So notice that because of sin, they covered themselves. And when God came around, they hid themselves. And then when God questioned, they defended themselves and played the first round of the blame game that the history of the world has been playing ever since. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Verse 8, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden. Verse 10, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree. And I ate. In other words, it's not my fault. God, you gave me that woman, and now look what's happened. Verse 13, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. You remember Flip Wilson's skit on, the devil made me do it. Reverend Leroy, pastor of the first church of what's happening now. His wife, Geraldine, drove their Cadillac into the side of a store, and she said the devil made her do it. So here's the results of sin. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, more than any beast of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Verse 15 is our promise. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. What he said, you're going to want to be the one in charge, but he's going to be the one in charge. Then to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, Cursed is the ground for your sake, and toil you shall eat of it 
all the days of your life. So this garden was blessed, and him working the garden, tending the garden, wasn't so much pulling weeds as just keeping the snakes out. Didn't do a good job, did he? Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Isn't that weird? When she was born, he called her Isha. Now suddenly, he's called Eve. If you look over at chapter 5, this is the book, verse 1. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Verse 2, he created them male and female and blessed them and called them Adam to the day they were created. God named her Adam. And Adam, like he named the animals, gave her a new name. They were the original Adam's family. But he named her Eve. She was not called Eve till after the fall. So along with blaming, as part of the sin, is labeling. People put labels on themselves. People put labels on other people. People judge. It's a form of judging. People put you in category as loser or whatever. Slacker. The result of sin. Verse 21. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Let's say the Lord clothed them. Where did he get this skin? An animal was killed. The beginning of the sacrificial system, I believe. A life was taken. Blood was shed in place of their own. And their nakedness was covered. And it goes on to say that they were not allowed to re-enter the garden. So there became a separation. This was the death that happened on the day they sinned. The living relationship that they had with God was severed. Physical death began to prevail. But it was slow. Kind of like you cut a rose off of the bush. It still appears to be alive for a while, right? Put it in some water. It appears to be alive for a good while. And then eventually the petals begin to fall off and the leaves fall off and you just got a stick on your hands. So it is separated from God. We are vulnerable to death. But worse than physical death is spiritual death. To be separated from our maker. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we've just read the story of where sin and shame began and how its effects began to have an impact on humanity. And, Lord, we see it still affects us today. I pray, Lord, that you would set us free, that you would make us people of freedom from the shame of our past, shame that's been put on us and shame that we put on ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Looking at this curse, there are six things that were pronounced upon us and one thing that was pronounced upon the enemy and Jesus Christ experienced them all. Look at the woman she was told. Well, we'll just start at the bottom. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. When Christ died for our sins, he was buried. He went back to the earth, part of the curse of sin. We're going back to dust because of sin. Another thing that they experienced was separation from God. 
And on the cross, Christ experienced that when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What did it mean for him to be separated from God? I don't know, but the separation definitely was evident in that he suffered without his father helping him, without him coming to his aid. Experience that part of the curse, returning to dust, separation from God. In the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Christ came and lived among us for 30 plus years. He knew what it was like to sweat. And on the last free day of his life, prior to the crucifixion, he was sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. Under such pressure, blood was oozing from the pores of his skin. They crowned him with thorns. Another part of these six curses. Bearing it upon his own body. In toil you shall eat all the days of your life. He came and lived for 30 plus years working hard with his hands. In the days before power tools as a mason and as a carpenter, a rugged man. He went through the great suffering on the cross so that you and I could be born again. In sorrow, he conceived the children of God through faith in what he did for us in his suffering. We can be born again and become his child. That's why I believe Isaiah 9, 6, that unto us a son is given, his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father. Through the work that he did on the cross, we can be born again, experiencing the sorrow that comes, the pain that comes with conceiving. Sixth part of the curse. Sorrow and conception, working, agony, sweating, returning to dust, Separation from God. And yes, he was naked on the cross. Uncovered so that we could be covered. So that our shame could be covered. He was put to shame. The seventh part of the curse that was pronounced upon Satan and not upon us He fulfilled that as well. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. On more than one occasion, young males were slaughtered. Infanticide was going on like crazy during the days of Herod when Christ was born. And during the Pharaoh, they were killing the Jewish babies. Wipe out a race by killing the young males. What is this? It's demonic. The enemy's behind it. He's threatened by young males. There's a potential what they can be. Threatened that one of them could be the Redeemer. One of them could be that seed, singular, with a capital S. And of course, that was Christ. And with this promise, this seed would bruise the head of the enemy. And the enemy would bruise his heel. Christ hung on three nails. One nail in each hand and one nail through both feet, putting all the weight of his body on those three nails and one heel bruising that heel severely. What is this? Christ is thoroughly fulfilling the curse of sin to redeem us from our shame. I want to pray again. Lord, help this to come through to us that if anyone here is struggling with shame over their past or shame from what somebody did to them, help them to see that you paid the full price. You did a thorough job 
and taking all seven of these things upon yourself for us so that we could be clothed. In Jesus' name, amen. I came to an awareness of these seven things because I needed to through shame that was in my own life. In 1975, my father was pastoring in Bloomington, Illinois, and my family and I, we all made the journey to Fort Worth, Texas, to the general conference for our denomination, where we submitted our application to become missionaries to Rhodesia. We were all appointed, including my sister and her husband-to-be, and they would join us later on the field. That was my first time to be in Fort Worth. Twenty-five years later, my son graduated from high school in that very building. This area is very dear to me. So in 1976, after raising funds, we moved to Rhodesia to establish a church, New Life Temple. Still there to this day, the congregation's huge. Called New Life Ministries, Bishop Tudor Bismarck. It's a non-denominational church now. He and Chi-Chi lead them, his wife. They were in the youth group when this church began. In 1978, after only being there for a year and a half, I came home as a newlywed early because I was disqualified to be a missionary. You see, I'd fallen in love with this lovely girl here. And I had, I had asked for her hand in marriage, and she had said yes. I chased her till she caught me. <laughs> but there was a lack of accountability because I had been trustworthy my whole life. I deceived my parents. And my wife and I began to take more and more liberties with one another. She wasn't my wife at the time. And we conceived our first child out of wedlock. And so to spare the church embarrassment and hinder the growth, we went ahead and got married quick and moved to Texas. And I was covered in shame because I had blown it, disqualified. Our parents were very gracious to us. We came to a loving congregation. Pastor R.L. Mitchell and his lovely wife, Grace, received us with open arms. They did not condemn us. It was probably the most loving Pentecostal church in our denomination in the Houston area that could accept us and help us come forth to healing. But I still had shame on me. And one day, a seven-day Adventist friend gave me a tape by Desmond Ford who was an Australian Seventh-day Adventist pastor, on grace, where he thoroughly taught how Christ fulfilled all seven parts of this curse and how he did this to remove our shame from us. And in doing it, he paid it all. So for us to work to try to earn a right to not be ashamed was in vain because God's love is not for sale. Were it not for his grace to remove the shame from us, were it not for the fact that he did this for us, I would not be here today. And a lot of us wouldn't be here. Please, please, please do not take my story as a reason to justify sin. 
I did not wish that on anyone. But it was years of agony till the truth came to me. And I wore that little tape out, playing it over and over and over again. So I'm walking in freedom. And after about six and a half years, I'm ready to step out in ministry again. And I want to start a church. But I, I want credentials for my denomination. I submitted my application, appeared before the district board in Lufkin in 1983. And they turned me down over a technicality. But the story over the conception of my first child came up during the interview with these big guns. And they discovered a technicality and turned me down and said, you clear this up, then you can come back again. I went home. And even though I knew the truth, shame covered me again. And when I got home, I went to bed and I never wanted to get up again. I did not want anybody to bother me. Just leave me alone. I really blew it. You know, just began beating myself up. Well, that evening, Hurricane Alicia blew in. Now, we're living in a church trailer park. 32 trailer spaces in that trailer park. And we're living in our little 14 by 56 mobile home. And the people in the trailer park all went to sleep at the church. And they would not let me stay in my trailer house. No, you're not staying in here. I did not want to be around people. Just leave me alone. They wouldn't let me. They compelled me, with the help of my wife, to go down to the church and just sleep in the hallways with the rest of them. When I woke up the next morning, because of their love for me, the shame was gone. The shame was gone. So saints... Although you may know the truth of how he sets us free from shame, sometime you need some truth with skin on it to help. Turn with me to Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Iniquity is that inward inclination, that inner motivation to be wicked. Transgression is acts of wickedness. So he was wounded inwardly, bruised for our inward wickedness and wounded outwardly for our outward wickedness. The chastisement or the punishment for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. We were the ones that went astray, but the Lord laid the punishment that was ours upon himself. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. Remember, they threw him in jail unjustly and then they had kangaroo courts, two or three of them, unjustly. And then listen to this verse. And who would declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. Who would declare his generation? Now, in our culture, we just kind of miss that. 
But this was a shameful thing to die without descendants. Because you are who you are based on who your fathers were and who your sons were. So those things that as Gentiles we see in the Bible as boring, these things are very much an identity. Example, so-and-so was a son of so-and-so, was a son of so-and-so, was a son of so-and-so. Have you seen those things in the Bible? In your eyes, you can't even pronounce some of their names. Was a son of so-and-so, was a son of so-and-so. This was very important to honor your forefathers and that your sons would honor you as part of the lineage of your forefathers. So for you to die without children, this was a shame. Children were a sign of wealth. They were also your retirement program. They were a blessing from the Lord. And before he had kids, he died. What a shame. I personally believe he could have gotten married. I don't believe he had been married. But he could have gotten married, could have had kids, and it had not been sinful because sex within marriage is not sin. Augustine had it wrong. Sex is not a sin within marriage. Like fire in the fireplace, it's a wonderful thing. But outside of the fireplace, you can burn down forests with it. It's dangerous. And so he died without children to take on our shame. This was a sad thing. In Acts chapter 8, a man named Philip is sent by an angel of the Lord to go to an Ethiopian eunuch on a chariot who's reading out loud from the book of Isaiah this very verse. Why is he reading that? Think with me. He had been to Jerusalem to worship, had he not? Traveled thousands of miles on his carriage, his chariot, to Jerusalem to worship. But you know what? Because he was a eunuch, he would not have been allowed in the temple. Even though he was an official entrusted with a lot by the queen of Ethiopia, he was disrespected in Jerusalem. His shame was made obvious when it came time to worship at the temple. So I don't know how he coped with that. I don't know if he was wrestling with that. But the point is, Christ identified with his shame and this ministered life to him. And the eunuch became a believer and said, here's water. I'm ready to be baptized. And Philip said, only if you believe with all your heart. And he said these words, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And he went his way rejoicing. Just as Christ has many spiritual children, you can be a single person and have many children spiritually who will be closer to you than even your biological relatives. It's true. Spiritually, we can be closer to one another than our biological relatives. How is that possible? Because of the new birth, our shame is taken away. And there's a closeness, there's a trust that's developed within us. What did he do? Go to Romans 10. How is it that he baptized them after he said, I believe Jesus is the Son of God? Don't you have to pray some kind of prayer? It's helpful, but in bottom line, here's what needs to happen when a person is saved. Verse 8, 
quotes a verse from the Old Testament, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is a word of faith which we preach. What is that? The word of salvation is near. People live so close to salvation, they just don't realize it. They think there's lots of hoops they have to jump through, mountains they have to climb. They've got to get their life cleaned up before the Lord will save them. Verse 9 of Romans 10, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what happened with the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. He believed and he confessed. Verse 10, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Aren't you glad about it? Lord, I thank you that you take our shame away. That you take our shame away. And that we can learn from the shameful things we have done or from those shameful things that have been done to us, we can learn to walk more wisely. But Lord, we thank you that where sin abounds, your grace does much more abound. Lord, with a greater understanding, a greater love for you because of your forgiveness. Lord, I pray that we would learn from one another's mistakes, one another's experiences so that we could walk in freedom and not have to experience shame. But Lord, I pray for those that have experienced shame, whether it's something they did or something that was done to them. I pray, Lord, that you would set them free. Lord, my prayer is that those people with testimonies that are not sharing them because there's a sense of shame, I pray, Lord, that the precious blood of the Lamb would take that shame away because you did so much. You did such a thorough job to free us from our shame.
such an appreciation in your heart it would begin to change the way you walk so you won't spiral downward into shame and fall back into old addictions to try to pick yourself back up Take it, but it's 